Alright, Tyler here. Welcome to Chapter 20, Economics, 1500. These last two chapters are on international trade topics. This Chapter 20, we're trying to understand a little bit about, a little more about the notion of comparative advantage. We, we introduced the concept of comparative advantage way back in Chapter 2, I believe. A little more about that, a little, uh, a little more about the sources of comparative advantage. And then in the final chapter, uh, 21, we, we look at the effects of trade restrictions. We know from way back in the initial part of this course that individuals can gain by specializing and trading. The same principle holds for nations. It's based on the same principle. By specializing and trading, you can increase uh, standards of living. You can reduce the opportunity cost of acquiring a good. So specialization allows for trade well, I should say it backwards. Trade allows for specialization, and uh, nations can, as well as individuals, can gain from trading. In the first part of Chapter 20, there's a lot of facts and figures presented, and I'm not going to rehash any of that. I'll remind you you want to look through some of that and be familiar with some of these facts and figures, as well as the, the first five slides of this chapter, which I'm now calling up, prevent, uh, present those uh, facts and figures. But what we want to do, and unfortunately, there's no slide on this. But if you want to go to page 479 in your book, and let's go over that simple comparative advantage example together. Because I know from experience that students struggle with this, this uh, being able to calculate comparative advantage. Here's the idea before we get into the numbers. But again, you might want you want to you want to grab your book and go to page 479. Nations can gain uh, by specializing in that good in which they have a comparative advantage and exporting that good. That's our theory. Nations can gain by specializing and exporting that good or those goods in which that nation has a comparative advantage. So this notion of comparative advantage means something. It's the same for individuals or even for states. Nations, states, individuals can all gain by specializing in, in those goods in which uh, they have a comparative advantage. So it's critical that we understand this concept of comparative advantage. What does it mean? In figure uh, in table 4 on page 379 it gives us a very simple hypothetical example. We're assuming we live in a world where there's two goods, wheat and cloth. Now we're going to we're going to uh, develop the notion of comparative advantage based on this two two good, two country model or world, but the same principle holds in a world of many countries and many goods. So this simplifying assumption of just two goods and two countries allows us to understand the notion of comparative advantage, but don't be, don't be concerned that this is somehow a contrived concept. It's, we're using a simple example to demonstrate a concept that applies in the real world, in a world of many nations and many goods. But in this simple example, we have two nations, India in the United States, and we have two goods, wheat and cloth. And we have some numbers there. They're hypothetical numbers pulled out of the air by the author, but what they're, uh, those numbers imply that, uh, that workers are, have different productivities in these two countries. Labor in the U.S. can produce with a worker day eight wheat or four cloth. And notice, in India, uh, workers a worker day will produce only four wheat or three cloth. So you can see in this example, you should understand 
from looking at these numbers that it's being assumed that that labor is more productive in the United States as opposed to India. And this again hypothetical example. But that's true around the world. I mean nations have different labor productivities. Workers uh, have different educational levels, they have different natural resources with which to work, they have more capital or less capital per worker. So it is a fact that work that labor uh, labor productivity will differ around the world and that will give rise to differences in as we'll see in differences in opportunity costs. So in this little hypothetical example, comparative advantage is going to be based on differences in labor productivity. Now that's not that's not always the case. I mean that is a source of comparative advantage, but as we'll see here in a little bit, there are other there are other sources of comparative advantage. But in this example, we start with a very simple example where we have output per worker day in diff two different nations and the numbers are such that it implies that labor is more productive in both wheat and cloth, in producing both wheat and cloth, than is labor in India. Which uh, reminds me, we need to mention this concept of absolute advantage. Absolute advantage simply means that uh, a worker is more productive in producing that good, or I should say labor is more productive in producing that good, in one nation than another. In this example, the United States has an absolute advantage in both goods. We can get more output per worker. The U.S. gets more output per worker for both goods. Hence, we say the U.S. has an absolute advantage. But remember earlier, trade is based on comparative advantage. Comparative advantage is based on having a lower opportunity cost of producing a good compared to your trading partner. Let me say that again. Compa you have a a nation will have a comparative advantage in producing a good when its opportunity cost of producing that good is lower than its trading partner. So we have to, in order to figure out which nation has a comparative advantage in which good, we have to calculate the opportunity cost of both goods in both nations. And so what I would do, if you have a pencil and paper, write this down. Let's look at these numbers in table four. And let's first calculate the opportunity cost for the United States. So uh, write US. Put a line under it, and below it, we're going to calculate the comparative advantage, or excuse me, well, yeah, the, the opportunity cost of, of each good in the United States. Well, with one worker, one worker a day, the US can get eight wheat. So write down eight wheat. Just eight wheat. But, as an alternative, we could use that worker day to produce one cloth. So isn't it true that if you can use a worker day to produce eight wheat, eight wheat, eight wheat, if you took that worker away and produced cloth, you'd get four cloth. So the opportunity cost of eight wheat, you give up four cloth. Or to produce four cloth, you have eight wheat. So in a very real sense, you can write down eight wheat, which you've already written down, eight wheat equals four cloth. And I just write down that equation. Eight wheat equals four cloth. And I hope you see why that's the case. Because a worker day will yield either eight wheat or four cloth. Can't do both with one worker. Now if you had two workers, you could use one worker. Well, don't go there. Just think of one worker can produce eight wheat or four cloth. Uh, so if you're if you're producing 
if you're producing cloth, say you have your worker day producing cloth, I'll do it this way. Once we have eight wheat equals four cloth, if you just divide through by eight, you get one wheat equals one half cloth, which should make intuitive sense because if if you have to give up only four cloth to get eight wheat, with your worker day you can get four cloth. But if you take that worker away from cloth and produce wheat, you get eight wheat. So the trade-off is four cloth to eight wheat, or the same thing, one half cloth to one wheat. So I've we're done. We've calculated the opportunity cost of one wheat in the United States is one half cloth. But now it's a, one simple step to calculate the opportunity cost of one cloth. If the opportunity cost of one wheat is one half cloth, it must be that the opportunity cost of one cloth is two wheat. So I would write that down. One cloth equals two wheat in the United States. Now I'll go over and do the same thing for India in another column. In India, one worker day can get four wheat, so I'm going to write down four wheat, or that worker day can get three cloth. So I'm going to say four wheat equals three cloth. I divide through by four, I get one wheat equals three quarters cloth, which implies that one cloth equals four thirds wheat. So I've calculated the opportunity cost of both goods in both nations. Then we pick a good. Pick wheat and ask yourself the question. Look at your numbers. Where, uh, which nation has a lower opportunity cost of producing wheat? In the United States, they have to give up one half cloth. In India, they have to give up three quarters cloth. Well, one half is less than three quarters. The U.S. has a lower opportunity cost of producing wheat. They only have to give up one half cloth per wheat. India has to give up three quarter cloth per wheat. So we say, we use the following phrase, the U.S. has a comparative advantage in wheat. Why? Because it has a lower opportunity cost. That's the definition of a comparative advantage. Well, given the, given the nature of the example, if a nation has a comparative advantage in one good, that implies that the other nation must have a comparative advantage in the other good. And let's see if that's true. Look at cloth. In the United States, one cloth costs two wheat. That's the opportunity cost. In India, the opportunity cost of one cloth is four-thirds wheat. Four-thirds is less than two. India has a lower opportunity cost of producing wheat. Therefore, we say India has a comparative advantage in cloth. Although the U.S. had the absolute advantage in both, the U.S. will still be able to gain, that is, produce and consume, I, sh I should say this, the U.S. will be able to consume more of both goods if it specializes in wheat and exports wheat to India, vice versa. India will be able to gain by specializing in cloth and exporting that cloth to the U.S. So they'll trade wheat for cloth. Both nations can gain by trading wheat for cloth if both nations specialize in the good in which they have a comparative advantage. Now the question is, at what price will they be able to trade and both gain? And that price at which they trade, not to be confused with these opportunity costs we've just calculated, but rather if the U.S. is going to export wheat to India for cloth, what would be a so-called terms of trade that would benefit both nations? Well, uh, it, 
in order, and here's the here's the here's the key: the, in order for both nations to gain the so-called terms of trade, or trading price, has to be in between the pre-trade prices. So if we look at say cloth, the the pre-trade price is the opportunity cost. The opportunity cost of one cloth in the United States is two wheat. The opportunity cost of one cloth in India is four thirds wheat. What is a price of cloth? One cloth that's between two wheat and four thirds wheat. Well, three halves wheat would work. Three halves is uh, greater than four thirds and less than two. So one cloth to three halves wheat would be a terms of trade that would benefit both countries. And there's a little example. Uh, the book finishes with a little example on on page uh, pages 480 and 481 that demonstrate, and I'll let you go through that example, that demonstrates that if they trade at that terms of trade, that is one cloth to three halves wheat, they will both gain. Uh, well, I think that might be the most difficult part, is just simply being able to calculate comparative advantage. Now, let's... Uh, Let's let's look using uh, we well, another way we we'll look at uh, trade is and, and look at the terms of trade is to use our supply and demand model simple supply and demand model to look at uh, how the terms of trade how the how the price of an export and import good will be determined and there's a series of diagrams and, that, and there are slides on these so if you go to slide seven. It's really slides seven and eight. And we're sticking with the same example. We're sticking with wheat and cloth. But let's look at slide seven, which is the same thing as on page 483. Uh, first, we're looking in, in the looking at slide seven. What are we looking at here? Well, in that first supply and demand diagram, we're looking at the supply of wheat in the United States and the demand for wheat. And what you notice here is that if there were no trade, if if we lived in a world of autarky, and autarky is a term we use to say, to mean no trade. In, in autarky, or no trade, ask yourself, look at that diagram, the upper left diagram, what would the price of wheat be? If there was, if domestic supply had to equal domestic demand, the price of wheat in terms of dollars would just be $6 in the United States. If the price were $9, you see there would be a surplus of 200 bushels, which we could export. So at prices above $6, and now we're looking, this might be confusing, we're th not thinking of the price of wheat in terms of cloth, we're now using dollars. But say that the U.S. is so good at producing wheat, and there's such a production of wheat, that the price would be fairly low. $6, which is, by the way, much higher than the actual price of wheat in the United States, but nevertheless, stick with the example, 6 bucks. If prices above six bucks, domestic supply exceeds domestic demand, and there's a surplus which can be exported. At nine dollars, there's a two hundred million dollar bushel surplus which could be exported. So that's how we derive this this export supply curve. Now, if there were no trade, looking at India, look going down to panel C, the Indian domestic wheat market, supply and demand of wheat 
are such in India that if there were no trade, the autarky price, the price without any trade, would be 12 bucks, which is much higher than the U.S. You would think if if India, if consumers in India could buy wheat less than 12, they would. If they could buy it from the United States for six, they certainly would. But based on uh, stick, sticking with panel C, you see that an e at, a, at a price of 12, domestic supply equals domestic demand. But as we go down from 12, say at $9, there's a $200 million bushel shortage, which we could equate to import demand. At that price, domestic demand exceeds domestic supply. There would be demand for imports. So looking at panel A and B, you could ignore panels B and D. Look at A and C. We can derive from those two panels. I shouldn't say ignore panels B and C, but that's uh, uh, that's part that's part of it. We want to we want to understand that panels A and B. We can use to de develop the export supply curve. If the price is above six, the U.S. has a surplus of wheat and they'll export it. India, on the other hand, at prices below twelve, they have a shortage and they want to import it. So we can use those two diagrams to develop the U.S. export supply curve in panel B and the Indian demand curve for wheat in panel D. What you could really ignore is the U.S. export supply because the U.S. isn't going to export wheat. And the, uh, strike that, you can de ignore the U.S. import demand for wheat and ignore the Indian export of wheat. Well, based on those, how we've developed these export, the U.S. export supply, the Indian import demand for wheat, we take that information and put it in another diagram, which is slide 8, and we see that there will be some price that will equilibrate U.S. export supply and Indian import demand for wheat, and that price is $9. So at a price of $9, going back to slides, slide 7, the U.S. has a surplus, domestic surplus of $200 million, which they export to India, at that price of $9, India would have a shortage of 200 million bushels, which they would buy from the U.S. So what, what, the, what this is trying to demonstrate is that the actual terms of trade, the actual trading price, will depend upon supply and demand conditions in the two nations. Uh, no more, no less. Now what we want to do is simply go through quickly, uh, not really quickly, just take as much time as we need, but uh, it won't take that long, the uh, sources of comparative advantage. And that, that the question is, why, why is it that some nations have a lower opportunity cost of producing certain goods than others? Or, or in other words, why is it that the price of wheat will end up being lower in the United States than in, in India, and therefore the in, U.S. can export the wheat to India. Uh, number of sources of comparative advantage. We've already seen one in our simple wheat cloth example from table table two. Where was that table? Table four on page four seventy nine. Comparative advantage is simply based on differences in labor productivity. And by the way, I'm on slide ten. Uh, where it lists, starts listing the sources of comparative advantage. Productivity differences. This was the source of comparative, 
comparative advantage as originally developed and and discussed by the famous economist David Ricardo. In fact, it's called the Ricardian model of comparative advantage. Trade is based on simple differences in labor productivities. Uh, in more recent years, other sources of comparative advantage have been identified. One is the almost equally famous Heckscher-Olin model called the factor abundance theory. And the idea goes like, the, the idea of the factor abundance theory is that a nation will have a comparative advantage. In other words, it will be able to produce a good or lower, lower opportunity cost, which will translate into a lower price. If it has a relative abundance of the factors of production used intensively in producing that good. Well, that's a mouthful. Let me say that again and give you an example. According to the factor abundance theory, that is the Heckscher-Olin theory of comparative advantage, a nation will have a comparative advantage in those goods which use that nation's relatively abundant factors intensively. Now, by factors, we mean factors of production, land, labor, capital. For example, wheat uses land intensively. That's, it takes a lot of land to grow wheat. Those nations which have an abundance of land suitable to growing wheat would have a comparative advantage in wheat. There's a lot of intuition here. If uh, a nation has an abundance of unskilled labor, perhaps Mexico, Mexico then would have a comparative advantage in producing those goods which use that abundant factor, i.e. unskilled labor, intensively. Or maybe India. In, make, in this cloth example, if cloth is unskilled labor intensive, India has a, a relative abundance of unskilled labor, it will be able to produce cloth at a lower price, lower opportunity cost. That's the, that's the factor abundant or Heckscher-Olin theory. Now a variant of that yeah, and this was this was well, one thing that happened with uh, factor endowment theory. We noticed e economists noticed that well, it, it explains some aspects of the actual trade flows we see in the world. In other words, it, it is true that to some extent that nations that have an abundance of land tend to export agricultural products, or nations that have a relative abundance of capital export capital uh, intensive goods. But it didn't, uh, the factor endowment, or factor abundance theory wasn't a complete explanation of trade patterns. So some other sources of comparative advantage have been identified. One, it's a, it's a, it's a variant of the Heckscher-Olene model, but just notice, notes that uh, factors, it's not, it's not just as simple to say the factors are land, labor, and capital because there are differences in labor, for example. There's skilled labor, unskilled labor. You just can't say a nation's abundant in labor. You have to break labor out into its various ver uh, variations. For example, the United States may be may be scarce in unskilled labor, but but abundant in scientific or skilled labor. And so we may export goods that require scientific or skilled labor, but import goods that require unskilled labor. And so this is. So uh, the human skills, which by the way we're now on slide 11, the the human skills, which is again a variant of the factor abundance or Heckscher-Olin theory. Uh, another th another uh, notion, which is more of a dynamic look at comparative advantage, 
And by dynamic, I mean that com we've noticed that com comparative advantage changes over time. And this isn't a, uh, so far, this human skills or these product life cycle theory, they're not alternatives to the simple Ricardian productivity-based theory of comparative advantage or the factor abundance theory of comparative advantage. They're just, they're just additions or, or additional insights. The product life cycle theory, the, the insight there is that the nature of a product changes over time and it may go from being unskilled intensive, or excuse me, it may go from being skilled intensive to unskilled intensive. For example, your book talks about color televisions. Initially, the United States had a comparative advantage in and exported color televisions. In fact, you can think of a whole host of electronic goods for which the United States developed, originally produced for the domestic market and exported. At some point in time, we begin to import those goods, and maybe eventually we don't even produce them at all domestically. We entirely rely on imports. So the good goes through a cycle from initially being a new good, which the U.S. exports, to being a a standardized good, which the U.S. imports. Now again, this may be consistent with the factor abundance theory because initially the good may require scientific labor because it's non-standard, it's new, it's difficult to produce. After a time, it, uh, the specifications are well known and the good, the, the production technology methods become standardized. At that point, it may become an unskilled labor-intensive good, which the United States does not have an abundance of, and consequently the U.S. may become an importer. But again, the, the insight here is that comparative advantage can change over time. Just because you're exporting a good at one point and have a comparative advantage in that good at one point in time, that may not, may not be true uh, in the future. Uh, another insight is provided by the by the uh, this preferences basis for inner uh, for trade flows for comparative advantage. All of these other uh, theories of comparative advantage shown in slide 11 are based on thinking of just supply supply-based reasons or explanations of why a country may have a comparative advantage in one good or another. Either labor is more productive or you have an abundance of factors that, that good uses. You, you have an abundance of a particular human skill that is used to produce that good. Uh, again, we're focusing on supply side or uh, bases for comparative advantage. But the price of a good, now remember, you have a comparative advantage in terms of in terms of just prices. The pr you're going to export a good when you can you your price, your domestic price is lower than the international price and you, uh, uh, you 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 just have a price advantage. Well, prices are determined by both supply and demand. And this preferences theory focuses on demand. Uh, and here here's a simple idea if, if if uh, if one country consumers in that nation initially demand the good, well then producers in that nation will produce it. So there'll be a domestic market for the good initially. And in order perhaps to take advantage of economies of scale, you will start exporting that good to foreign lands. Uh, now, one thing this preferences notion of comparative advantage explains is the fact that in the real world, 
we uh, we observe that much trade takes place between nations that look a lot alike. In other words, you see trade between the U.S. and Canada, between the U.S. and Europe. Now that's somewhat inconsistent with the factor abundance theory of international trade because Europe and Canada, or excuse me, let's just say U.S. and Canada look a lot alike. Capital intensive, skilled labor, excuse me, capital abundant, skilled labor abundant, agricultural land abundant nations. But yet there's a lot of trade that goes on between the Canada and the United States. Same as between U.S. and Europe. Uh, well, one one explanation of this is that nations that have level, similar similar levels of income will initially demand similar goods. For example, the United States, we demand cars. High-income nation, we like to drive cars. Europe, high-income nations drive cars. So the domestic market will first, the domestic producers in those nations will first produce cars. They'll develop a skill in an, in an, in an industry in producing cars. But then our demand uh, may vary slightly between the two nations. We may, well, demand won't vary, but uh, different nations may specialize in a particular type of car. For example, in Germany will initially develop an auto industry to serve its domestic high-income consumers, and same in the United States. But may, maybe in Germany, because of whatever reason, Germany specializes in a particular high-end type of car, maybe a high-end, high-performance car. The U.S. may specialize in a more broad-based, uh, uh, mid-level type of car. And cons consumers in Germany who want mid-level cars will buy them from the United States. U.S. consumers who want high-performance cars will buy them from Germany. Japan, on the other hand, may specialize initially in... Uh, again, they'll develop a car industry to produce for the domestic market, but then they'll specialize in a particular type of car, fuel-efficient small cars. So U.S. consumers who want fuel-efficient small cars will buy them from Jap Japan. Japanese consumers who want cars and maybe want a, a mid-level uh, larger sedan will buy Buicks from the U.S. Well, I, I, went, I went much further into that than, than probably is necessary. But uh, international trade is an important topic, and in, in, in any introductory economics course ought to spend a little bit of time, which is all we do in chapters 20 and 21, talking about some of the basic concepts of international trade. In chapter 20, the basic concepts are the concept of comparative advantage, the, ter the notion of the terms of trade, and the sources of comparative advantage, and a little, a little bit about each of those sources of comparative advantage. Uh, the four supply-side-based sources of comparative advantage and the demand-based source of comparative advantage. And I think, uh, before I confuse you anymore, I will, I will stop there and pick up with Chapter 21 here in a little bit. Bye-bye.